0: let's pray. dearest Heavenly Father, it's so easy to be distracted by the noise and busyness of this world when what we really need is you. In these next minutes, please give us self-control to listen and learn from your word, for we know that one day the noise and fury of this world will end, but your word will stand forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. September seventeenth, two 2017, College freshman Lucas Kavar set out with his university's spelunking club. He was looking forward to learning about cave exploration and making some new friends along the way. When he arrived, he left his jacket in the car of the fellow student he had ridden with and was then assigned a buddy. The club president unlocked the grate at the cave entrance. They divided into two groups and set off to explore. After a few hours, Lucas had had enough of the dark dink cave and he decided to leave his group to join up with a group ahead of him. We know what happened next, because Lucas kept a diary on his phone of the following events. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to find the other group, so he turned back, but he couldn't find his original group either. Sometime later, Lucas did find his way back to the entrance to the cave, but to his horror, the grate had been locked, and no one was in sight. Since he'd left his buddy in the first group, they weren't looking for him, and the second group didn't realize that he was missing either. Everyone had returned to campus without him. His phone had no reception. He could hear cars driving by on a nearby road, but shout as he may, they couldn't hear him. He tried to pick the lock with a paperclip, but was unsuccessful. On the second day, Lucas came to realize the gravity of his situation, and began his diary on his phone and composed farewell letters to friends and family. Besides the cold, he struggled with lack of food and, most of all, water. He records that he tried to lick water from the walls, but it was not enough to survive off of. Analyzing his situation, Lucas knew he could not save himself. We likewise cannot save ourselves. We're not strong enough to overcome the fearsome powers out to destroy us, the world, the devil, and even our own flesh. We need help. Our text today is all about a conquering Savior. His strong arm is able to save. We've already learned of the great things that God did to bring his people across the flooding Jordan, bringing down the walls of Jericho, and defeating Ai for them. And today we'll see how God completed that work of giving his people the land, just as he promised. God will keep his promises to us, too, so we can trust that our God fights for His people. We'll look at our text in two divisions, our need for a Savior and our sufficient Savior. Our first division, our need for a Savior, covers Joshua chapters 9-10. through In these chapters we see the Gibeonites' desperate attempts to avoid destruction and the salvation they find. Our passage begins, And when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, They came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. News had gotten out about God's mighty work. They had also heard that God had instructed Israel to wipe out the inhabitants of the land, which included them. Furthermore, they had seen that individual cities could not stand against Yahweh, but they thought perhaps together they might be powerful enough. But just as Rahab, when she heard of what God had done, responded differently than everyone else in Jericho, so too the Gibeonites could not deny who the true God was. They knew that they, despite being a city renowned for their military prowess, had no hope other than to somehow align themselves with God. Now what comes next is not a perfectly worded believer's prayer, but in their bumbling, fumbling way, they declare their need and faith in God. In verses 3-4, to However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and A, they resorted to a ruse. Old supplies and worn sandals bolstered their claim to be from a place far from Canaan, and they had all the right answers, carefully mentioning only old military victories by Moses on the other side of the Jordan to give the Israelites the impression that they came from such a distance that the newest conquests would not have reached their ears yet. Their ruse was good. So good, in fact that it worked despite a cautious and careful examination by Israel. Israel thought they had this decision under control, but they were duped. It was not that they did not think, because they did, but that they did not pray. Wait, wasn't failing to pray the very mistake they had just made, as they boldly attacked little AE only to be driven off shamefully? But God is patient, and so the lesson is repeated. Our senses are all that we have to make decisions, but of course reality is more than the material. As commentator Dale Davis says, We need not only the power of God to overwhelm our obvious enemies, but also the wisdom of God to detect our subtle enemies. Three days later, Israel realizes their folly when they reach Gibeon. Then they wrestle with what to do. On the one hand, God had told them to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. On the other God is a promise keeper, and as his people, Israel was expected to do the same. Even the Gibeonites knew that. Israel had been tricked into their sin. Perhaps this was reason to default on their allegiance. However, they had been tricked because they had failed to seek God's direction in prayer. Again, rationalizing, reasoning, looking for a way out, all a natural response to a hard situation. But God-glorifying integrity calls for holiness even in the midst of our messes. Holiness is not easy. That makes it all the more beautiful in the eyes of God and stunning to the world. We cannot pull off this kind of victory over our instincts for self-preservation and pride without the power of the Almighty God within us. We cannot welcome the child out of wedlock, or as Israel did, rush to save the Gibeonites when it would have been so easy to let the other Canaanite kings kill them off without the aid of the God who fights for his people. Let's take a closer look at why Joshua chose to uphold the treaty. An oath was a serious thing, because it was a witness of God's honor. God's promises to Israel were what sustained and strengthened them, but they were only such because they could be trusted to be faithful. And Israel was to be holy as God is holy, a witness to the nations, and a glory to their father. The leaders recognized that it was vital to keep the oath, Verse 20, this is what we will do to them. We will let them live, so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They chose to not add sin to sin. They would make the best of the consequences of their folly. They knew they lived before a holy God, whose love doesn't let us sneak out from under the consequences of our commitments. Some of us have made a covenant of marriage before God. Sometimes that covenant is difficult to keep. But we see in this passage how keeping our oath is a good, God-glorifying decision, even if we regret the making of the oath. Likewise, those of us who are members of a church should also take our membership vows seriously. We're used to the privilege of shopping around for everything from shoes to an education. But let's make a furtive effort to persevere in our vows to our local church body, even when it isn't convenient or easy. Our faithful Father is pleased when we resemble Him in this way. The battles are not ones we fight on our own. No, our God fights for His people. Although the Gibeonites were allowed to live, verse 27 tells us, that day Joshua made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. In this way, they were brought not only into the geographic boundaries of Israel, but into the very sanctuary, where they would witness God. And what became of the, of the Gibeonites? Before the temple was built, the tabernacle was placed there by David, meaning that the altar and the priests were there too. At least one of David's mighty men, an elite group of trusted and unwaveringly devoted soldiers, was the Gibeonite. It was at Gibeon that Solomon had his vision— when God spoke to him about his coming rule. Much later, the genealogies of the Jews returning from Babylonian exile included the list of the Gibeonites, astounding because some claiming to be Jews were not in the registry, and thus not allowed to be a part of the Jewish nation. The Gibeonites were mentioned as being among the people who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. Thus they went from servants to legitimate children. Wow! Isn't it marvelous how throughout Joshua we have seen such vivid portrayals of both God's mighty arm of judgment against sinners, but also glorious pictures of his work of salvation? Rahab, and now the Gibeonites, throwing themselves on God's mercy and finding not only salvation, but, a life, but life, a people, and a home. But just as Rahab had to give up all her people, livelihood, and customs, so too the Gibeonites paid a great price. When they chose to align themselves with God, they broke their former allegiances, and those five kings were bitter at the betrayal. The king of Jerusalem appealed to the four other kings in chapter 10, verse 4. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. The five kings joined forces and attacked Gibeon. Verse 6. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Joshua is a Christ figure throughout this book, emphasized by the name Jesus being Greek for Joshua. In Joshua's readiness to respond to the Gibeonites' call of distress, boldness, wisdom, and military cunning, we see a portrait of Christ our Savior. These chapters also emphasize that it was God's victory. Verses 10-11 through 11, The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Machedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Meditating on this passage is exactly what we need in the moments when we feel discouraged by the onslaught of sin around us and in us. If our God can perfectly aim hail, confuse the minds of warriors, stop the sun in its tracks, and harden hearts at will, why are we so anxious? Our almighty and sovereign God fights for his people. Therefore, it's only foolishness not to turn to him in our need. There are many things that can be said about prayer, but one thing of which I am convinced is that it is ultimately a posture of the heart acknowledging dependence upon God. The reality is that we always need God. Sometimes we feel it, as the Gibeonites did when surrounded by their enemies, but even when we think that we have it all under control, as the Israelites did when examining the dry bread, we need God. Therefore, prayer is a necessity. Prayer is also a luxury. What privilege to be able to call on God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And yet God does care for us. His mind is full of thoughts about us, and he delights to come to our aid when we call on his name. For it is our God's glory to fight for his people. And so it is fitting that Joshua should pray in the midst of the battle. Verses 12-13 to 13, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As we view Joshua as a Christ figure, we also see a glimpse of his work as our advocate. In 1 John 2-1 we read, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And from Hebrews 7.25, we learn that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is God praying on your behalf today? He sees the vistas of the spiritual battle in your life and what would be needed for victory, and that is exactly what he is asking for just as Joshua asked for the sun to stand still in the sky so that there would be enough hours in the day to bring full victory. Our God fights for his people as their advocate in heaven. One commentator called this stopping of the sun the apex of all that God does in battle for his people as he makes a place for them in the promised land. Even in a pre-Capernaum understanding of the world, the sun's regular traverse of the sky was a foundational reality. For us, questions of momentum upon our planet suddenly stopping rotating on its axis or some other explanation flood our mind. How he did it, we are not told. That he did it, the text is clear. As you face the challenges of each day, remember this is the kind of God who is fighting for you. The things that we think are so certain, like the sun's rising and falling, are not beyond the power of God. There's always hope with this kind of savior. But there was no hope for the five kings; they had been found hiding in a cave during the battle, and now that the fighting was over, they were brought out. Verses twenty-four to twenty-five. And when they were brought, um, and when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, "Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings." Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Here we see judgment, specifically judgment of those who lead others in opposition against God. Although delayed while Israel finished the battle, judgment was brought to fulfillment. We too can trust that although ultimate judgment of our and God's enemies may be delayed, in the final day, all judgment will be fulfilled. This is also a picture of victory. As Joshua instructed his chiefs to put their feet on the necks of the God-hating kings, we see that David would later prophetically write of Jesus' ultimate victory. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yet this glorious victory was first proclaimed against the serpent in the opening chapters of Genesis when sin first seemed to doom all of creation. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Likewise for those of us who have allied ourselves with Yahweh, we can be certain that even though the spiritual battle continues to rage around us, in the end we will know ultimate complete victory over every evil in christ our god fights for his people the chapter ends with an account of the southern cities being conquered with the emphasis upon continued and complete obedience verse 40 so joshua subdued the whole region including the hill country the negev the western foothills and the mountain slopes together with all their kings he left no survivors He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. We need to face the battle against sin with the same persevering determination. It is rarely a one-and-done decision to end your relationship with sin. We often have to defeat it over and over again. How good it is that Christ, our conqueror, faithfully fights for us year after year, temptation after temptation, until in the end there will be no surviving sin in us. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Battle after battle, our God fights for his people. So in these two chapters, we have seen our need for a Savior. Just as the desperate Gibeonites found a Savior, so too, after 58 hours, alone in the cave, a Savior came to set Lucas free. It wasn't just any man who came, but the club president, the man with the key. Lucas spent three days in the cave staring death in the face. Just imagine what those days must have been like. But our Savior need not imagine. He went into a cave already wrapped in the clothes of death. Three days he spent utterly alone. Praise be to God, on the third day, from the cave, Jesus emerged with a key to open the door of death to eternal life for us all. Our first truth is, whether we know it or not, we always need God. Where might you be seeking God's power but ignoring his wisdom? In which current situation are you most tempted to handle things yourself rather than seeking God's wisdom? In what ways does God reveal himself as your warrior today? Wondering where you can find God's wisdom? You need look no further than his word, and in prayer, ask him to help you take hold of it. And speaking of prayer, when God answers a prayer, don't just move on with your life. Take time to thank him, and file it away in your memory. He is revealing himself as a warrior today in so many ways, if only we would have eyes to see it. Our second division is our sufficient Savior. In this division, we will look at chapters 11 and 12, which cover the remainder of Joshua's conquests, and recap all that he and Moses did to complete God's call to take the land. At the beginning of chapter 11, we learn that all the northern kings unite. The first five verses lay out in detail how numerically and technologically the united Canaanite kings have the advantage. Chariots were the elite military weapon of their day. Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite facing this great foe. It must seem overwhelming. The fear, the sense that evil would overcome. Was God in control? How could He allow this? The whole north of Canaan united against them? This seemed like the worst possible thing that could happen. But as we will see, God was completely in control, and in the end, His great wisdom, as well as His might, Would be on grand display. The place they chose as a staging ground for their troops was on wet land, unsuitable for battle with horses and chariots. They didn't plan to fight there, but Joshua's um, surprise attack forced them to and negated their technological advantages. I wish I could park right here and internalize this for the next time I feel like evil must surely win. God knows that since we can't see the end from the beginning, we struggle with fear. For the seventh time in this book, he exhorts Joshua not to fear. In addition to this command, we are blessed to have a record of all that God has done to help us banish our fear. Our God fights for his people, and so we need not fear. Another thing of note in the detailed list of kings united against Israel is that it is the same list as that first given to Abraham when God initially promised him the land. Genesis fifteen eighteen 18-21 On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And again, this link back to that generation's old promise is highlighted in verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, a number like the sand that is on the seashore. But of course, God's people were to be those numbered as sand, not their enemies. The artistry of this text is emphasizing that this battle is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. You see, God fights for his people as he has promised. But then, strangely, in verse 6, God instructs that after the battle, you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Even Hollywood is careful not to harm horses in the making of their films, so why would God require his creation to be injured after this battle? He was safeguarding the hearts of his people. Let me explain. The cities of the north had military tools, horses, and chariots, that would fall into Israel's hands upon their sure victory. Then, wouldn't it be all too easy for Israel to trust in these military advantages against the other cities in Canaan, rather than relying solely on God? Psalm 20 verse 7 needed to be their war cry. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, We are blessed with many advantages in our modern world. Insurance, exceptional medical care, home security systems, etc. Just like horses and chariots, none of these are intrinsically bad. But when we look to them rather than the conqueror, we sin. This is a serious problem and something we need to be mindful of. It is God alone who fights for his people. Then we are told that God gives Joshua victory in the north. Verses 15 to 16. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone in all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land. Obedience. Careful obedience was the pattern to vi- for victory. Joshua had to listen carefully to God's instructions and carefully follow every aspect of it. At times it must have seemed unfair or illogical. We see Achan questioning God's commands, but Joshua trusted God and obeyed. We need to do the same. We need to be active listeners on Sunday mornings and diligent students as we read his word through the week. When something God commands is hard for our hearts to accept, we need to remind ourselves of the goodness and wisdom of the one commanding it and obey. And as we obey, we may rejoice in the victory God gives us. Each time we choose to obey is a victory in this great cosmic battle. A God fights for his people, giving us the strength to obey. Now verse 18 tells us Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Our battle with sin is one that we will wage our whole lives. Satan will persevere in his mission of misery to the last day, but joy upon joy we have a conqueror who will fight with us to the end. The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isaiah 40, 28-29 Our God fights for his people to the end. The mighty warrior we look to for salvation is dread to those who have their hearts set against him. Verses 19-20 Except except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a holy God. We cannot deny this is hard to read, but the text is clear. And Paul explains the same pattern of rebellion and God giving sinners up to their own desires in Romans 1. Sin starts small, but its momentum soon becomes unstoppable. Are you taking the sin in your life seriously? If you are not a believer, you need to know that God does. His justice demands judgment for sin. This campaign is just as much about judgment upon the sexually twisted baby-murdering Canaanites as it was about giving a home to his chosen people. Israel was God's instrument of judgment. Generations of sin had been committed, with God patiently waiting. Yet the Gibeonites were the only Canaanites who sought his mercy. Presumably, if any others had done the same, they would have likewise known the God who fights for his people. Many of the cities and kings listed in these chapters are lost to history. But the last group mentioned in this chapter are worth a closer look. Verses 21-22 to 22. And Joshua came at that time and cut off all the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anad, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, and Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. These were the very people that had caused ten of the twelve spies sent by Moses to come back and report the land through which you have set, ha, we have gone to spy is out. Let me try again. The land through which we have gone out to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. And yet Joshua who had in faith urged the people to go at once to take the land, had with God's victory conquered these very people. Take note. Our God, who is greater than even that which we fear most, fights for his people. Now the book of Joshua is divided into two sections, the conquering and the settlement of the land. Verse 23 marks the transition from one to the next. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, then the land had rest for more. And as we look back at this doxology of all that God did, our hearts, too, should be overwhelmed by the rest that God has won for us. Hebrews 4, 9-10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for those who Uh, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In these verses, we are also given a portrait of our Savior. This is a Savior who finishes the work. This is a vanquisher of all his and our enemies. And this is a returning victor who generously shares the spoils he has won as our great inheritance. The fullness and completeness of this Savior are so contrary to what we find in this world. In fact, the lack that we have become all too accustomed to makes it hard for us to find words to describe our hero. When I say he is our sufficient Savior, I do not mean, as we so often use that term, that when he ha- what he has to offer is just enough to meet the lowest requirement. No. Rather, the sufficiency of our conqueror is the utter fullness of his salvation. There's nothing left undone. There's no need or desire that has not been met in him. Have we not been given all spiritual blessings? Our prayers are answered more than we could ask or even think. Our God fights for his people, and this is sufficient. Continuing the summary of God's victorious work through chapter 12 is a review of all the defeated kings from the time of Moses through Joshua. What can we learn from this list? It's good for us to likewise remember and name the victories God works in our lives. We're forgetful, but we need to remember so that we can face the future with faith. According to commentator Dale Davis, this chapter is Israel's version of Greatest Thy Faithfulness. Each victory in history is a preview and pledge of the ultimate final victory. The psalmist drew upon the account of God's victory over Sihan, Og, and the kings of Canaan, as evidence of God's greatness in Psalm 135, saying, He it was who killed mighty kings, Sihan, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, through all ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people. In Psalm 136, That great litany of God's love through the ages lists God's defeat over these same kings as evidence of his great affection toward his people. Just as these authors did, we need to memorialize the great works of our conquering Savior, his work as recorded in Scripture, and his work in our own lives. In order to fortify our hearts for the battles ahead, our God has fought and will continue to fight for his people. King after king is listed. Men of power, men who were feared, men whose word had been obeyed even to the death. But at the end of the day, there was only one left standing. The King of kings has conquered them all. Colossians 2.15 tells us that on the cross, Jesus likewise disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As our God fights for his people, we can trust he will be victorious. Our second truth is, we can enjoy rest now, knowing our Savior is sufficient to win every battle ahead. What fears keep you from wholeheartedly following God? What has God done that brings you assurance of His faithfulness? Fear, worry, anxiety, the plague of a woman's mind. They cannot coexist with faith. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but for perfect love casts out fear. His perfect love, which fights for you, is your means of freedom from fear. Don't leave this gift in the bag. For every worry, find a past victory of our conquering Savior to meditate on. We are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. I learned Lucas's story because my husband regularly watches a YouTube channel dedicated to spelunking misadventures. Luke's was the exception, and that he escaped alive. Many cavers die because they go exploring on their own and find themselves in a situation beyond their limits. Thanks be to God, in our need, we are not alone, but rather we have a great Savior who fights for His people. In closing, let me leave you with this quote by commentator Rhett Dodson. If we take time to look at the details of Scripture and to do the hard work of meditation, we may find this text and others like it are just as heartwarming as John 3.16. You and I do not face Canaanites, but in reality we face more formidable foes. We are engaged in battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The triumphs recorded here remind us of the God who will fight and help us in the fight. We have a storehouse of strength in the Lord and we avail ourselves of that power if we are to overcome. God so loved Israel that he gave them the land. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. And God so loves his people that he will give us victory over every adversary and safely bring us home to heaven. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we praise you for the great work that you have done through the ages on behalf of your people. We confess often we let fear keep us from following you. We worry about the trajectory of the world. We're gripped with anxiety over all the things that seem out of control, forgetting that you are in control, and you're working out your wise and good plan now as you did at the waters of Miram. Thank you for not leaving us to this battle to fight on our own. Please hear our prayers as you did that of Joshua, and let the sun stand still. May you not rest until the last enemy of sin is conquered in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.